Bibles, this is what I want you to do. Go to, go to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the end of chapter 2, or, or almost all the way to the end. And as you're turning there, um, I'll say this. So, so from time to time, I, I like to um, point out what um, I think the value of expository preaching is. It, it's our practice here. It's you know, we look at books of the Bible, we um, walk through them verse by verse. We, we want to ensure that we are seeing and hearing God's Word in context, the context in which He inspired uh, His Word to be written. Um, it also reminds me that one of the values here at Bethel is that we would be led by God's Word. And, and I, I, I mean led by God's Word, meaning rather than simply trying to use God's Word as we lead. We want to be led by God's Word. And it brings me to the third thing about the way that we sort of walk through the Bible is I'm reminded of the relevance and the timeliness of God's Word as we seek to understand it in its context. And I believe this morning that God's Word is going to be leading us I mean, the passage that we come to this morning, the passage that we're going to study uh, in this first letter from the Apostle John, this passage is both timely and relevant. I think God's leading us this morning through His Word. He intends to specifically instruct us at such a time as this, in, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of chaos and crisis going on in the midst of a pandemic and all the change that it's created, in the midst of an election and all the strife and the hatred that we see everywhere, in the unrest in our culture surrounding race and justice. I think God's Word is uh, leading us this morning in a very timely way. It's relevant. It's instructive. It, it's, God's Word is living. It, it, it's um, alive. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, and it meets us with piercing clarity. I'm reminded the Bible is not just an ancient text. It's the living Word of God that speaks to us today. I mean, what John wrote 2,000 years ago, God speaks to us as though it were written yesterday, and he meant it for us all along. I think that's both the, the mystery and the power of God's Word, that His Spirit helps us to hear and understand as it draws us closer this morning to our Savior, Jesus and it means to transform us more and more into His likeness and prepare us for eternal life to come. So, I'm in 1 John, and I'm going to start in chapter 2, verse 18. And I want you to hear um, this portion of God's Word that John wrote to the churches in his day. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have 
heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that uh, it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you, have, uh, you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing you have received from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that we would hear from You. I pray, Father, that I would get out of the way of what you are going to do. I, I pray, Father, that my words would be helpful as we seek to understand your word with clarity. Father, believing that your Holy Spirit brings that to us. And so, Father, we pray the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Well, I want you to notice right off the top that there are kind of three things I want us to see. The first is that John, I think, saying we need a perspective of the time in which we live. Well, also, we're going to need to see with clarity what the dangers are among us. And then finally, he's going to say that we we want to grip the, the promises that God's given us. Firstly, uh, the, the, we need a perspective of the time in which we live. Notice in verse 18, he talks about the last hour, the, the last hour of this age. The, the word last there is the word eschatos. If you're a theology nerd, you know uh, that's where we get eschatology from, a study of the end or a study of the last, the last days, the, the last time. These are somewhat related terms. They refer to that time um, that began with the coming of Jesus. And, and it'll, all, it'll be all wrapped up with the supernatural return of Jesus in all of his power and his glory. That, that's, the, that's the time, that's the last days from, from the first advent of Jesus to his, his coming, his 
appearing. When you follow the cross-references through the Bible, one of the things you see is that the last days, this, this time between the arrival of Jesus and the, and the return of Jesus, um, these last days have last days, all right? Um, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. 2 Timothy 3.1, Paul tells Timothy, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. The, the, the Bible speaks about the last days. There's just like this great building, um, a, a building up of, of time um, until the return of Christ, where all the, uh, the, the forces of evil, all the forces of hell and, and then on one side, and all the forces of, of heaven, that they, get, um, um, that they come against each other. And there will be this marching towards the destiny of man to its final day. That there'll be, there'll be last days and the last days, and then there will be a last day of the last days of the last days. History, in other words, think about it this way. History is not like running on a cycle. History is not, uh, is not a wheel in motion. We, we are moving to a point of destination. We're moving towards the day that Christ will return. Jesus talked about this much. You can find it in, in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke. Here's what he says in John chapter 6. Chapter 6, 39. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. A few verses later, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. We're not lost somewhere on this uh, uh, road of, of journey. We're not spinning aimlessly towards eternity. We are under the direct and the sovereign control of a sovereign God who's numbered the days, who's ordained the days, and as surely as he brought this age into being with the coming of Christ... That night in Bethlehem, he is moving history towards the day that Jesus returns. John's saying, in, in some ways, that the last hour has struck. And, and there's nothing now that remains that needs to happen before the Lord appears. He doesn't tell us. Then tell us how far into the last hour we are. We're not to set dates. I mean, that's the, that's the problem. A lot of people, in every generation or every decade, it seems, 
You have folks that take the eschaton and they begin to set dates by all of the things they're putting together. We're not, we're not told the date the last hour comes to an end. He, he doesn't, he's not necessarily speaking about this last hour chronologically. He's speaking about it expectantly. He, he's talking about the kind of age that we're in rather than the duration. In other words, all down through the years, there's many times people... Uh, it, it looked as though maybe this were the end of the last hour. And there's been many last hours. Times it appears. Listen, prophecy's been fulfilled. This is the perfect time for Christ to come back. We should live with that kind of expectancy. I'll tell you, from a, from a personal standpoint... Um, Maybe a more practical standpoint. There are times that um, at funerals, I thought this would be the perfect time for Jesus to come back. There are times when, in counseling, and when a marriage is blowing up, and I think this would be a perfect time for Jesus to come back. Where I've answered the phone, and the news on the other end made my Heart drop. What a perfect time this would be for the Lord to come back. And there are times like that in our lives. There are times like that in, in history. And you go through the history over the last 2,000 years, you see there's a number of times that look like this, this would be the, this looks like the right time. It looks like Christ might come back. And the first five centuries were filled with it. There was so much false teaching, and Scripture was so new, and people, um, you know, so very few people had full copies of Scripture in their language. And in five different times, the church leaders, they come together uh, over God's Word, and they gather in church councils to hammer out what, what Scripture meant for the church. look like, listen, these would be perfect times for Christ to come back. And, and yet, yet they, they weren't the time yet. And John wants us to know, listen, he sees from his perspective that the powers of darkness, they seem to be rallying. And he sees the hearts of men and women and they're being um, uh, consumed with things that draw their hearts away from Christ. And he says, you know, listen, we're in the last hour even though it's been 1,900 years since John wrote this, it remains true this morning as we look at our Bibles, as we, as we look at our world. We're to be stirred up in diligence to the fact that Christ could return at any moment. And there are those around us uh, without Christ that, that need Him. And many of these people, listen, they're lovely, they're kind, they're they're, they, they're good, they're, they're, they're gracious to us, but they're lost. And they need Jesus, and we shouldn't... We're not about being people who confine our eternal God who's beyond time and is above and beyond our understanding. We're not confining God to our clocks and our calendars. It's enough for John to say that, that we've moved into this realm of history, and we are waiting, we are expectantly waiting 
for the return of Jesus. One of the things he says about it is the antichrists are being revealed, which brings me to the second thing. Not only do we need to know the times we're living in, but we need that, a clarity around the dangers that we face. When he talks about antichrist, Jesus in Matthew and in Mark's gospel um, speaks of false Christs. So there's two ways to think about it. We hear antichrist, and some of you that are old enough, you go back to how Lindy's, Lindsay's late great planet Earth or all of the really bad movies that the church made in the 80s. Remember at my church, we, we, um, I, th- I think we burned records, you know, uh, which is terrible. Um, you know, they'd be worth so much today. <laughs> but we were worried about that. And there's the Antichrist, you know, singular, a particular figure used to describe a, a world a ruler in the book of Revelation that will consolidate all the kingdoms of the world, will demand worship of himself. That's, that's, the, that's singular. John here writes about the Antichrist is still coming. In fact, he'll talk more about it in Revelation. But, but plural, there are Antichrists. There are many in the world today who try to take the place of authority in our lives and in our churches, the authority that Christ ought to have. So anti, it it means instead of or or could mean against. Many things in the world that are trying to take the place of. Those are anti-Christ. Sometimes it doesn't even appear that they're necessarily against Christ, though they are, but they're defined by, by trying to take the place of the authority that Christ ought to have in our lives and in our churches. In, in the specific application of this, 18, uh, verse 18, verse 19, they want to be in the place of Christ. Now, now what John's talking about specifically is he's talking about false teachers. I think that's what he has in mind, and certainly that's true in our day too. But there's also, I think, a principle about false teachers that, that apply beyond just teachers, but to, but to sources of false teaching. And uh, we get not just from teachers who stand and teach falsely, but there are false philosophies and ideologies that bombard us in this connected and technological age. At its base, it's it's humanism. Humanism defined this way, an outlook or system of thought attaching prime importance to human rather than divine or supernatural matters. Humanist beliefs stress the potential value and goodness of human beings, emphasize common human needs, and seek solely rational ways of solving human problems. Humanism has been in every century. 
it's a philosophy developed for every age and every generation with resources and technology at its disposal. And it says, listen, if man, given enough time and enough money, can solve all of his own problems, there's no need for God. That's the underlying message. In humanism, listen, it screams at us from social media and news and entertainment, universities and advertising and churches. Antichrists that are all around us, even though we may not have any specific false religion or false cult or false teacher, the basic point is that we all need a standard by which we can judge this falsehood. That's what John's saying. See, much of the things that demand our attention, media, social media, scandals, conspiracies, ideology, today, all those things are focused on taking the place of Christ in our lives. Here's how it works. It's so insidious. Humanism takes a good thing. And it brings it to the center of your attention. Humanism, it, 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 in all of its forms, it, it appeals to your concerns and your fears and your insecurities and your needs. And then it offers you up a solution that can save you. And the insidious thing about our enemy in this world system in which he's been crafting since Genesis 3, is that the solution usually comes to us as something that's good. I mean, sometimes it's nefarious and immoral or wicked or a vice, but not always. Sometimes it comes as something that's good, but the appeal is to take this good and to make it ultimate. The demand is to take the good thing and commit your trust to it to save you. That's what antichrists do. Present you with a solution to your problem. And that solution is by the enemy's design meant to take the place of authority in your life. Now, one of the tests or one of the evidences of this is, is what this good thing that's been offered to you, that you've taken hold of and made ultimate in your life, what does it produce? Well, Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 19, it tells us this works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. Here are some of the things that the works of the flesh, these can be good things that are made ultimate things. This is what it produces in individuals, in churches, in the world. See if any of these sound familiar. Enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, dissension, Envy, to name a few. That's half of them. The fruit of the Spirit, listen, when, when Christ is at the authority in our life, when, when Christ is at the place, the ultimate place of authority in our life, the fruit of the Spirit, the indwelling Spirit, is love and joy 
and peace and kindness and goodness and patience and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. I mean, it's a good way to know, okay, what's at the ultimate place of authority in my life by what is my life producing? Is, is, is the evidence or the fruit of my life the works of the flesh? I mean, am I increasingly angry? Am I increasingly, uh, you know, contentious? Am I, uh, do, do I feel just stressed out all the time? Whereas there's this increasing fruit of, of the Spirit in my life, love and joy and peace and kindness, even in the midst of things that are stressful and beyond my control and seemingly sky is falling kind of things. Well, I need to move on, but there are a couple of things about this. One, when John talks about the Antichrists, originally, as, as individuals, or maybe even as values or virtues, originally they seemingly were a part of Christian truth. That's where all heresies have their root, by the way. So it's where false Christs get their start. In fact, in Acts chapter 20, Luke is, is writing the story of the, the Acts of the Apostles, and, and he records Paul saying these words in Acts chapter 20 to the elders in Ephesus. And he says, so pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit's made you overseer to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And then Paul says, I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. That's what John's saying. Second thing he indicates in verse 19 is they, they were among us. And those that are, were among us, they, they know the Christian terminology to use. They went out from us. They were within us. They, 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 know, our, they know our lingo. They know what Christians are familiar with. What levels of comfort they have and don't have. They know the kinds of things Christians want to hear. Sometimes using even the very terminology that Christians use, but they substitute it with their meaning. Third thing he says is ultimately they'll end up breaking away from true Christianity. Now let me say something. And, and I say it because I have to. Because we're in this passage. But by God's providence, He leads us this morning. I am afraid there are many people who have united themselves. They call it faith and they use Christian lingo. They, you, they, but they've united themselves not around the resurrected Christ or 
historical orthodox doctrine that the church has believed for 2,000 years, but rather they've united themselves around political ideology. Listen, politics can become antichrist by elevating a good thing above the ultimate thing. Here's a good thing. It is. I mean, we're interested in the protection of our way of life. That's a good thing. It is not, however, the ultimate thing. The ultimate thing is the preparation for our eternal life to come. In fact, he's going to say in verse 28 down here, little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. We want our ultimate is Christ, is Lord of our life, preparing for eternal life with him to come. Which means the protection of our way of life now is not ultimate. And if it becomes ultimate, it's an antichrist. And it produces the works of the flesh. Well, you're still here and trapped. So I'll go on. Not only do we need to know the times we live in, we need to know the dangers that are among us. He's also saying we need a grip that clings to the promises of God. Look at um, what he says in um, uh, verse, uh, let's see, 20. Look at verse 20 with me. Um, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Your NIV uh, translation translates this very difficult Greek phrase is you have all knowledge. You have all knowledge, or you all have knowledge. You can see how that, you confuse that. You can see how that could be difficult. I take it to mean you, you all have knowledge. And you have it because you've been anointed by the Holy One. Now, the first reference of anointing, you go all the way back into the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, God sets up the tabernacle, worship services. He sets Aaron, who's Moses' brother, up as the high priest. And when Aaron's installed... Um, he's anointed for that office. And what happened? Moses comes, he takes oil, he pours it over the head of Aaron. Scripture refers back to it. Uh, the, the, the oil ran down over his beard, over his body. It's the first description of anointing in Scripture. And the anointing that Moses did of Aaron was to symbolize God's presence with Aaron and God's approval of Aaron. God's choice of Aaron. And then when the new high priest comes, he's anointed, and kings are anointed, and prophets are anointed, and the picture is a, it's a sign of God's work in a person's life, of blessing. Of Psalm 23, David talks as a sheep, speaking of God as the shepherd who anoints his head with oil, a picture of comfort and care and personal relationship. 
Now, I'm going to take just a minute here because I, I want you to want you to hear what, what John is saying about this. He, it's not the only place he talks about it. You can go to his gospel, um, really beginning in chapter 13, but specifically 14 and 15 and chapter 16, into, into chapter 17 as Jesus prays. Paul brings it together, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. This is what he says. This is how... The Old Testament anointing comes to us as believers after Christ. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him, in, in Jesus. That's why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. And it is God who establishes you with Christ and has anointed us. Jesus says in John 14, I'll ask the Father, He'll give you another helper to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world can't receive because it neither sees Him or knows Him, but you know Him for He dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus is saying so many words, I've been with you. I've been another person in your life, but when the Spirit comes, He'll be in you. This is the difference. He's God just as I am. He's one of the three persons of the Trinity, but He will be in you. And you all know, we have the Spirit, we have the Holy Spirit. We have the anointing of God. We now have the capacity to know the things of God. We have this anointing from the Holy Spirit. We, we all have it if we're believers in Jesus. The anointing of the Holy Spirit. The capacity to know as God has revealed Himself. And not only do you have anointing, he talks about this union that we have. And it's, it's amazing. He uses this word abide. Well, we're in him. He's in us. In, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says this. And I, I'm move on and we're, we're going to close. But he says this. For, for who knows a person's thought or thoughts, except the spirit in that person, which is in him. Who knows that? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the, spirits of, the Spirit of God. See, what he's saying. No matter how we might know somebody else, we can't fully know everything about them. We can't know their heart. We can't know what's really on their mind. We can't know what they're thinking. I mean, the longer you're married to somebody, the more involved you are with somebody, you begin to understand uh, them. You, you, you can read their body language. You can anticipate what they're gonna, uh, how they're going to respond to something. And you can come pretty close to knowing what's going on inside of somebody else. But, but you can't fully know. You, you, you can't hear everything that's going on. 
you don't have their spirit. They don't have your spirit. Paul goes on, now, who, who can know a person's thoughts? except the spirit of that person which is in him. No one can comprehend the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. I can't give you my spirit. You can't give me your spirit. I can't know all that's going on with you. But what God's recorded in His Word means it is possible as a believer for you to know God, the God of the universe, more closely than you know your spouse, your children, your closest friend. But you can know, you can understand more fully what God's thoughts are than the closest people around you. Jesus told his disciples, when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll guide you into the truth. It, it, it blows my mind that God has opened himself up to us that fully. The ability to understand him. And even if we don't understand those things in details, we can have a peace that comes, a peace that passes understanding as we understand God's too loving, it's too... Uh, uh, to, to do anything unkind, and he's too wise to do anything wrong. And we can trust him, no matter what. We're anointed by him, we're comforted. His, his approval, his pleasure is on us. We, we're in him, we, we can know him more intimately. And we, then we can know anyone else. And there's this abiding presence of, of God and His truth in our lives. That's what He means in verses 24 to the end. When He says, the truth of God, it needs to abide in you. The Spirit of God, let it abide in you. The way He's using the word abide is... Let the Spirit of God make Himself at home in you. Make Himself at home. Listen, you may have friends that come by through town periodically. You say, oh, come with me. You come, come stay with us. Make yourself at home. And that's all fine and good. If they stay too many days, though, they begin rummaging through all your stuff. Well, you might have said, come make yourself at home. That's not what you meant. With these people that lived in our house one summer while we were in seminary, we were gone and they were coming. They needed a place to stay. We said, oh, you stay with us. And they, they moved into our house. We, when we got back at the end of the summer, they'd rearranged all of our furniture. They painted the rocking chair that was on the front porch, the antique rocking chair. They, they even, this is the one I, I, thought, I thought my wife was going to go to jail for murder. 
They rearranged all our kitchen cabinets. They, they changed where everything was. I know, right? <laughs> they made themselves at home. Although that's not what we meant. That's what God means. I want to be at home in your heart, not just a visitor. Someone you don't confine to the guest bedroom. I want to be at home in you. I have equipped you to live in a world full of falsehood, full of all of the enemy's devices to keep you from having all that I want you to have. But you can know the standard of truth. You can know what is true. You, you can know me. Now let me be at home. And this is the promise that he made. He says in verse 25, this is eternal life. You let God himself be at home in your life and you discover that if, if you'll do that, you'll be at home with him. And then John says, listen, and this is the promise that, that he's promised us, eternal life, eternal life, to have God at home in your hearts and be at home with him, belonging there, that's eternal life. And in one sense, eternal is not, not, it's not talking about quality necessarily, although I think he is, but he's also uh, he's talking about quality, not, not, not only quantity. Eternal life something that can begin even now. There's God at home in your heart. That's eternal life begun now. Well, I'm out of time. The, the thing I would leave you with is this appeal. The, the tone of Scripture throughout from beginning to end in Scripture, one of, the, one of the threads, the resounding themes is God calling people to His Word. Jesus says this Spirit that has anointed you, that, in, that dwells in you, will help you understand his word to be at home in you. And, and so my appeal is that, that you'd find time every day to be in God's word. Say, Lord, I know you're with me. I know you are within me. I know that your promise is to teach me the word of truth. I pray that you'll open my eyes to what's here and I pray you'll give me understanding. And God's promise is that he will do it. Listen, more than ever, as things seem to point to in our generation, you know, the last hour and the rise of all the things that want to compete for the place of authority in our lives with Jesus, We will not know the Spirit of God at home in our lives and the fruit of that Spirit apart from time 
in God's Word. For many of us, we've got to change the diet of our daily intake. Time in God's Word. You won't imagine what that will do to your perspective, for your appetite for other things. Well, that's my appeal. That's John's appeal. That God's Word would abide in you because His Spirit abides in you. You would be, you would be at home with God being at home within you. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I pray that you would do what only you can do. That by your Spirit you would open our eyes to the clarity of your Word. I pray anything I said that didn't accord with it, that you would burn away, be forgotten. Father, your Spirit in us would stir our affections for you. Father, would you convict us of the places that we haven't let you be at home in our lives? Father, I pray we'd confess those things. I pray we would lean into you. I pray that we would we'd not only find the time, we would we would make the time to be in your word so that, Father, it would abide in us. We ask this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit.